Our guest today is Coach Pete Montpelier. Coach Pete is a strength and longevity coach who I met a couple years back when I was looking to get back in shape after being out of college football for a couple years. Coach Pete is age 51, although biologically all his markers come back as age 25. His focus on nutrition, sleep, and recovery habits have helped not only him, but many, many other young athletes and college athletes in the tri-state area feel great and injury-free. Pete is a really great guy, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Please be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever podcasts are sold if you like this episode. Or even better yet, if you didn't like it, please tell us why. It's only going to help us be better for everybody else. This is important because we're going to start giving away our review, gifts, and goodies in the next couple days. So please be sure to leave your review. All right, so I'm recording now, so uh, we'll just kind of get started. So. Um, what is your super secret origin story, Pete? How did you get to be a strength coach and longevity coach? Well, I, I, I literally, and I, I say literally, I'm going to be 51 this May, and I literally have been an athlete all my life. That's like not an exaggeration. I mean, from the time I was eight years old, I have played organized sports. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, funny if that's the right word to use but um it's what I do in other words um I have hobbies don't get me wrong but sports and fitness and training for competitive sports literally has been the one thing that I've done my entire life um so I got started at a really really young age um in college in the 80s um, my dad was importing and exporting um, apparel from clothing from China, and he was way ahead of his time. This is like you know mid um, mid to late eighties, right around the time of like Tiananmen Square, and uh, I actually started studying um, Asian studies, Chinese language, and and philosophy, and and so forth. But and as as much as I liked it and I was doing well in it, um, something was missing. And I just remember walking out of the gym one day um, and saying to myself, geez, I don't know, you know, it was like one of those, you know, early 20s, like, what am I going to do with my life conversations <laughs> in your head? Right. It was like, I, you know, I don't really know what I'm going to do. My dad wants me to go into this apparel business with him and importing and exporting clothing and, you know, China's the future and so forth as far as trade and business. But um, it wasn't where my heart was. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know it has to be something involving sports and something involving athletics. And, right. you know, I kind of just went with that, got my first personal training job in Scarsdale in June of 1992 um, and literally have never looked back. So again, I, I've literally been involved my entire life in, in sports and sports training. Gotcha. And so more recently though, you've kind of focused a little bit more on the longevity coaching side of things. Can you define yeah. for us what is a long or what is your definition of a longevity coach and why that is an important part of anybody's general well-being and strength training? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, for many, many of those years, um, I was, and still am a strength coach and, and my focus was on performance, peak performance, athletic performance period. Um, and then I hit 50 and, um, sort of, a, an exercise midlife crisis, so to speak. And, um, you know, I feel like I had kind of been there, done that with strength. Aren't you going to always, you know, you keep learning and, and there's tremendous strength coaches out there that you, you know, you never stop learning, but, um, I wanted to do something a little bit different. And I just kind of, um, really got into longevity, anti-aging and in particular men's health, um, mm -hmm. and how to optimize peak performance, not just for athletics, but for, you know, every aspect of our life from being a dad to being a coach to being a husband, you know, whatever area is important to you. So the definition um, to me now of a longevity coach is how to help people, and it can be men and women, I don't mean just to say men's health, how to help people to optimize their peak performance. And then peak performance is a general term. What does that mean to you? And it's actually when I start coaching and I start talking about peak performance, I'll ask the person, what does that mean? And what areas of your life? Talk to me about the broad spectrum that you're looking to excel at, having more energy, having a, a greater, healthier libido, having um, better blood biomarkers so that your chronological age might be 50, but your real age, your metabolic age might be 30. So it's taking a look at the total person, at their nutrition, at their exercise, current regimen, if they, if they have one, uh, their sleep habits, their supplementation habits, and then tweaking, literally tweaking all of these things into habits that will help them to achieve their definition of peak performance so that they can win at their world. Gotcha. And I think that's a much more holistic look at strength training and health because at least in Western culture, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you've studied, you know, Eastern culture and yeah. um, we tend to compartmentalize everything, yes. you know, work, workout is workout, home is home right. and work is work, but you're kind of taking the opposite approach. You're hundred percent correct with that. It, it, and I do view it as, and I explain that in depth with people that it is all connected. It cannot be compartmentalized. In fact, it has to be a holistic connected approach. Um, because if it is not, you know, to, to sort of oversimplify it, the weak link in the chain, right? We all know that story, the, the weakest link in the chain. If there's a weak link in that chain, then you're not going to achieve the ultimate peak performance in your life. So all of them, all of the, the components that that we're going to you know, dive into a little bit deeper from nutrition to exercise, to supplementation, to getting your blood lab work checked, et cetera, needs to be analyzed, data collected, see what can be tweaked, where weaknesses are and bring them all up together as one, not just one and forget about the other. It just won't work that way. And I think, so for you listeners out there, Pete's my coach too. He's helped me out with dropping 15, 20 pounds past couple of months. And so one of the things that, really made you different that I didn't get from other coaches when working with you, Pete, is you told me early on, this isn't a 30 day washboard ab fad diet that like you do and you suck up and then you go back to the way things were like, this is how it's a life. I know it sounds corny to say, but it's a lifestyle. This is when you tell yourself, this is how you live now. 
Yes. Your habits become a little bit easier. Could you talk a little bit about the barriers that you see that are most common to people that you work with like myself or others that prevent them from making lasting changes? Yeah, I think you hit it right there. Really what we're talking about is atomic habits. You and I have talked about that book by uh, James Clear, right? I don't have it in front of me. Um, And it's the development of these tiny habits, right? When we think about an atom, an atom is very, 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 very small, um, but is also extremely powerful. Um, And so I like to use that analogy with everyone that I work with, whether they're a high school athlete all the way up to the, you know, 55 year old, you know, that's just getting back into exercise to try and try and drop 30 pounds is the development over time, slow and steady, sort of like the tortoise, the, 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 the hare doesn't win here. It's the tortoise, slow and steady wins the race and changing these habits, um, these lifestyle habits over time, because we all know everybody, whether you're into fitness or not, you've heard of, you know, there's a million diets and a million people start diets and they might, you know, lose whatever, 10 pounds in 30 days or 10 pounds in 10 days, whatever the gimmick is. And then they put it back on. And it's simply because you haven't changed your habits. So the minute you drop that so-called diet, you're going to gain the weight back and probably gain more than, than where you started. So if you don't look at it holistically, if you don't look at it as an all-encompassing, you've got to take all these parameters of your life, again, nutrition, sleep, et cetera, and bring them all up simultaneously that they're all connected, it won't work. It's the development of these habits over time that is going to change um, or improve your peak performance, I, I should say. And it's, to me, it's really, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way in this development of getting in your brain and understanding lifestyle change and lifestyle habits. This is the way to do it because it'll stick. That's the key. It'll right. stick. And that's what I'm trying to do, you know, even uh, with, with my high school athletes is be like, look, we're preparing you for this event or this season or whatever the case may be. It's track and field. It could be an event. If it's football, it's for a season. But I always preach to them, I hope that you are going to take these habits with you for the rest of your life so that when I see you someday, 20 years from now, you better still be in shape. Don't come back to me and say, oh, coach, look at me. I'm a fat, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, learn now and ingrain these habits because they will help you 20 or 30 years from now if you're that high school athlete. Right. And I think success is marketed with so much hype and it's marketed as like this miracle moment when everything comes together. but you know, in retrospect, you can like point out, oh, boom, there was that make or break moment. There was that make or break moment. But in reality, in the moment, it almost feels more like a 200 mile death march than, yeah. than it does like this great transformational process. Do you find that that's true? Um, yeah, definitely. There's got to be, um, you know, uh, an amount of self-discipline here that we're talking about. Um, and so one of the things I'm really kind of careful of the best that I can is to kind of screen um, people that I'm, that I'm working with in the beginning because they have to be ready. Um, this can't be, well, I'm going to try it. You know, if, if you're talking that way or, um, you know, thinking that this is something that you're just, I'm, I'm just investigating, let me think about it, that type of language. I know that the person is psychologically not ready to make these atomic habit changes right. and it's not going to work. And I'm just, you know, very politely like, look, I think 
now is not the right time or I'm not the right coach. And when it is that time, you know, and you're talking more definitively, come back and we'll make this happen. Because it's got to be exactly as you just said. It's got to be uh, the lifestyle change. And it, psychologically, you've got to be ready to, to dive in here with both feet. And, and, and it takes some discipline. Sure. Yeah, I, mean, I think a, a good chunk of what you and I work on and what you work on with your clients is, is really habit formation and habit yes. coaching. Now, can you, so there's the habits, right? But then there's also the, the actions or kind of the phases that you take people through. Could you talk us through what your first like two to three steps are or, or what, what is it, what is working with you actually look like? So what's one of the yeah. first things you look at with people when they yeah. come? So, so the first thing really is to take a snapshot of who you are, where you've been and what you're currently doing. In other words, just think of it as, as data collection. I need as much information as possible um, in each of the columns. What have you been doing as far as exercise or training is concerned? How long have you been doing it for? At what intensities? Um, talk to me about nutrition. What do your nutritional habits look like? Do you track your calories? You don't track your calories. Do you have any idea how many carbohydrates you eat per day? Um, how many hours of sleep do you go through? So it really is in the very beginning, me asking a ton of questions so that I can understand who you are, where you've been, what your goals are, what you've been through, what's worked, what hasn't worked, um, and then taking that data and sitting down, sifting through it, and then coming up with small changes mm -hmm. at a time. Nothing you know, drastic, but small, small changes in each of the columns to begin with. And for some people, it literally could be just one thing. Um, you know, it could be um, working on cutting sugar, for example. Like if I, if I see somebody is, you know, consuming a diet that is high in sugar, I always like to start there because that is one of the main killers, literally is sugar, as we all know, leading to diabetes, leading to dementia, leading to all the bad stuff down the road, and certainly not helping you if you're an athlete. So, you know, nutritionally, it could be literally just starting with one thing, learning to cut the sugar out because then comes the sugar craving and how do we deal with the sugar craving and what foods can you replace psychologically when those uh, and physiologically when those sugar cravings come in so that we can get you through there so that you're not going back to eating, I don't know, you know, whatever that worst food is that you're eating a Snickers bar or a Coke or a soda or something like that. Right. Now, now do you see, let, let's kind of talk about sugar for a second. Obviously like, kind of innately sugars become the new smoking, but um, it's insidious. It's almost in like everything. Like one oh, of the man. first things I noticed when working with you, just like getting more, I don't know, reflective of my diet was that like sugar was in everything. Like even like cliff bars and stuff that you think is healthy, it's like chock full of sugar. Um, what advice would you give to, I guess, you know, what advice would you give to like a parent or a young athlete regarding sugar? So this is like one of my, I'm glad you brought this up because it's like one of my really, really main focal points. Um, and I think it's so vitally important um, because what we have to understand is for the parent of the, of the young athlete and for the athlete themselves, you must understand carbohydrates. So for example, I am not in the keto camp. Um, and the reason being is that I just, we, won't, we won't dive into the deep physiology of, of the body and energy systems and all of that 
here now we could do that another time but um athletes need carbohydrates <laughs> let's just let's just put it that way athletes need carbohydrates that is your fuel source that is your energy source that is your gasoline whatever analogy you want to use so it's sort of like look you've got to understand carbohydrates are not the enemy what mm -hmm. is the enemy is refined sugar added sugar if you pick up a, a, an ingredient if you pick up a food let's say it's a packaged food and you read that ingredient label and you think you see things like organic cane sugar like you know the, the, the marketing is very catchy to make you think like it's healthy like you said cliff bars molasses honey uh stevia all, all of these other forms of sweeteners maltodextrin i mean you could go on and on there's dozens and dozens of them refined sugars and sweeteners are the enemy for health mm -hmm long-term and for the athlete. So we've got to start with a basic science understanding of carbohydrates are good, refined sugars are bad. Yes, carbohydrates are sugar. Now let's break that down and understand what is a good carb, what is a bad carb, how do carbs actually help you? Why do you need so many of them, especially if you're a power athlete or an endurance athlete for that matter? And how do we get good carbohydrates, like let's just say simple food from sweet potatoes, versus a refined carbohydrate that you might find in a cliff bar or something like that. So gotta understand that yes, eliminate sugar, that's where we're going with this, but we're talking about eliminating refined sugar. There's a big difference. Right. And I think what gets lost a lot is satiety or like how full a food makes you feel. So yeah. you could you could have a bag of chips, which technically they would be carbs, right? Mm -hmm. And a sweet potato. But you need like six bags of chips to feel as full as if you ate half a sweet potato. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that has to do really with, with two things. One is the fiber content. Yep. Um, so, you know, um, I like chips just like, you know, everybody else. But, you know, rather than eating a bag of Doritos, you can do things like uh, I like a company by the name of Jackson's Honest. And they'll, uh, it's not organic, but, you know, they're sweet potato chips made with, I think it actually is organic coconut oil. So the sweet potatoes aren't organic, but the coconut oil is. Anyway, the point is, because it still is a processed food, there's less fiber. And the fiber is what is satisfying or satiating. Mm -hmm. So if you're eating the whole sweet potato, you're also getting lots of dietary fiber. Now that might not be good 20 minutes before an event, but that, you know, again, that's a separate topic. Right. Um, but if we're talking about for recovery purposes or, or, you know, two hours before a workout, you can go ahead and have that fiber. You'll have time to digest it, et cetera. But it, it doesn't exist as much anyway in the processed food. And so that's a big part of understanding the carbohydrates also processed foods versus whole foods and making sure that we're leaning in the direction, leaning in the direction, because can't expect everybody just go, you know, 100% whole food. That would be pretty tough to do, but I mean, some people can. Um, but it's understanding, you know, the depth of that also as well, the starches and the fats that are involved there. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and I mean, you know, with obviously with younger athletes, like the mentality is, well, you know, you got such a high metabolism, you'll just burn it off. And and all that stuff. But I, I see it all the time. I, I don't think kids have a aversion to hard work. I mean, there's weight, I mean, before all the coronavirus stuff, but there, you know, right. there's a lot of kids working their butt off in the weight room, but then they're going home and filling their bodies up with like garbage for lack of a better term. And it's almost like they've just broken even for the day. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. You see that a lot in body types of football players nowadays, right? So, you know, for example, the, the, the linemen nowadays, you know, used to be 315 pounds and kind of look like the size of a condominium. Now they're 315 pounds and pretty damn lean, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and talk about the kicking community. Kickers used to be, you know, the joke was that they were all kind of scrawny or, you know, whatever. Now kickers are pretty freaking jacked, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, across the board. And so where does that come from? Is it just this massive difference in training? I don't think so. Although that has something to do with it, but really the massive difference is in nutrition, and what athletes are putting into their bodies now. So it's not so much the training, I don't want to diminish the importance of training, but it's nutrition first. That, that's the point that I'm trying to make. Gotcha. Let, let's shift a little bit from the eating side to not eating side with fasting. So mm. fasting has been talked about a lot. Um, there's, you know, you have like your crazy Uncle Joe who fasts for three days a month or something like that. <laughs> Somebody out there probably has that. Um, I've done it myself. I I found it really helpful. Can you talk us through like the argument, kind of the, some of the myths and arguments for fasting? Like what, what do people get wrong about fasting and then why might they consider it? Okay. So first thing of course is who are we talking to? Right. Because Mm -hmm. again, we're back to, you know, if it's the high school football player, um, or I use the example of um, one one kid that I'm coaching now uh, who plays football at the University of Chicago, mm-hmm. um, and he's weighing in at 190 pounds currently. He's a freshman, about to be a sophomore for the hopefully what will become this fall's upcoming season if there is one. Um, but he needs to put on 15 pounds, and obviously we want to put on as much, you know, of those 15 pounds lean muscle as possible. So he's not a candidate for fasting at 19 years old and needing to put on 15 pounds. However, um, if you switch to population and you know we're talking about, could be one of two. It could be, again, the older, let's say 30 or 40 plus male who wants to become more fit, who wants to be healthier, who wants to change their blood biomarkers. Maybe there's issues with inflammation or cholesterol, those types of things. Then they're a great candidate to learn the the health benefits of fasting. Or even if it is a competitive athlete that's not, you know, in season, I wouldn't do it in season, but there's some time for off season training and they need to lose a little bit of body fat um, while still building some lean muscle mass, they too would be a candidate for fasting. So the first thing is it's not for everybody. It's for specific populations. And you got to figure out if that athlete or that person fits into that, that category. And once you do, then you can start diving into the health benefits of fasting, which there's so many different ways to do it um, that we could talk about, right? I mean, I know you've been doing the intermittent, basically, um, 16, yep. 8, you know, and there's so many different ways it can get confusing. So then we have to kind of sift through what's best for you because there's so many different names of fasting, intermittent fasting, um, 
periodic, all these different, you know, names that ultimately at the end of the day kind of mean, you know, the same, the same thing, time-restricted feeding and, and, and on and on. It gets kind of confusing. Should I do 16 hours? Should I do 12 hours? Should I do a day? Should I do three days? Should I do a week? I mean, you know, where, where do you begin and where do you end? So you have to sift through that. And ultimately that boils down to, again, the individual assessing with that athlete or with that person, you know, what's going to fit into your lifestyle? How much can you handle? You know, what are you interested in? What are your goals? And then trying to, to set them up for success that way, as far as, you know, you wouldn't, for the first time ever, you wouldn't just dive into a three-day fast, for example. Probably not going to work when you're setting that person up for failure. So then I guess for, let's look at it from a fat burning uh, yeah. perspective. How does, I guess, because, you know, it might sound rudimentary for you, but could you just kind of talk us through like what that fat burning process looks like in your body? Yeah. I'm trying to keep it like real simple, right? Cause yeah. you know, we could dive into some deeper metabolic stuff, but just trying to understand it on a level um, that is helpful. Uh, I'll say for, for, you know, the, the athlete who um, wants to utilize this or even for the, you know, for the older adult, um, it really boils down to the number one thing that I like to point at is it, the best thing is that we haven't talked about blood work, but, but the best thing is to take a look at one's blood laboratory work. Um, and in particular, you want to look at the fasting glucose levels. Um, there is a very important um, term and health marker that is called insulin sensitivity. And okay. simply what that means is you eat, Let's say something healthy, you eat an apple, okay? And if your fasting blood sugar is 80, um, you eat that apple and you get immediately tested a few minutes after eating that apple. The apple has fructose, it's got sugar in it. Um, you go to 110 or 120, let's say. How quickly does your body recognize the rise in blood sugar, dump insulin, and help to escort that sugar um, molecule into either the muscle cells or the liver cells. So glucose is circulating in the blood sugar. The insulin gets dumped to help control that high sugar. It either gets stored as energy or as we all know, it gets, we've heard what you've heard gets put away as a, a fat cell for energy, you know, later on. Right. So what I'm getting at is the number one thing is that fasting does for us health wise and fat loss wise is helps us to become more insulin sensitive mm -hmm. so that that blood sugar is not floating around in there a lot longer than it should be but we're sensitive to that insulin it helps lower that blood sugar level and that in and of itself is a massive health marker for everybody i don't care what the age is so that's the number one thing about fasting is blood glucose control gotcha okay yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fascinating to look at that because obviously now you people are seeing all this stuff on social media with hey, how are you supposed to keep your immune system? How are you supposed to keep your you know your body systems working and regulating? And um, one of the things you and I talk a lot about is like cold therapy, um, yes. which like there are guys like Wim Hof. For <laughs> those of you that don't know, he's this crazy Dutch guy who's climbed Mount Everest in no shirt, no shoes, and stuff, and he like 
he's all about cold therapy and like having it reignite your immune system. But we've all, if we've played sports, we've all seen football dudes in the ice tub and in ball camp and stuff like that. Can you talk us through what the number one benefit of cold therapy is from a sports perspective and then from a like fat yeah. um, immune system yeah. perspective? So from the sports perspective, like you said, this is not anything new. I mean, it's been around, I don't know, as far as I know, from the 50s and probably way, way, way before then. Um, you know, you'd see old NFL guys. Reggie White was famous for it. The defensive lineman uh, that um, is no longer with us for the Green Bay Packers. Reggie White used to, you know, dunk himself for 20 minutes in an ice bath after a game. Um, so number one for athletes is it reduces inflammation. Um, you know, and it, there's always been studies and there's controversy, you know, it, it works, it doesn't work. I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's been around forever and we keep coming back to it. I think it works pretty well, <laughs> um, you know, as far as reducing joint soreness and, and inflammation, there's literally thousands of studies that you could, you could uh, one could dig up if they really wanted to go into the topic. So reducing of inflammation. However, in addition to that, there is also a longevity benefit. This is where it really gets interesting because, again, I think the athlete that's really focused on sports performance should also be thinking about their long-term health. And right. so what cold therapy does is um, scientists have discovered that there are seven longevity genes, and these are called sirtuins. Okay. Um, and again, without diving too deep into this, the cold exposure activates one or a couple of these so-called sirtuins. They are survival genes. Those survival genes literally wake up, they get alerted, you're cold, you start to shiver. And what that does is by activating those genes, they dump certain enzymes and these enzymes have been shown through this sirtuin activation to aid us in longevity to know more about it and really get into the science i'd recommend there's a great book right now out by a dr david sinclair who is a longevity researcher geneticist at harvard uh, the name of his book is lifespan where he talks a lot about these sirtuins if somebody wanted to take a deep dive into it more so mm -hmm. than what you and I are talking about here. So again, cold therapy, man, I think, uh, trying to think of a population that wouldn't use it. I guess, you know, sick, obviously, if you, if you have coronavirus and you've got a fever, you don't want to jump in a cold tub, right? right. Um, so if you're sick, you probably don't want to do cold therapy, but if you're healthy, you're a healthy athlete, or you're somebody that's looking to increase health span, you want to learn cold exposure. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I think, uh, you know, we in the West, like we'll, you know, we'll build like these fancy dry ice pods and these state of the art cold oh, yeah. tubs. And those are great. But like when I lived in Eastern Europe for a couple of years as a Peace Corps volunteer, my host dad would go out every morning in January and like chip open a hole in the frozen pond yeah. in town. And he would just go swimming in it. Yeah. Like they, they would, it just, that was just part of their culture. Now, part, part of that too, part of what they also love to do is going to the sauna. Mm. Could you talk us through uh, the benefits from a sports perspective of heat therapy and then from a longevity perspective, heat therapy? Yeah. So very similar. Um, and I actually recommend 
both and I okay. actually recommend both back to back. So exactly as you were just saying, um, in these Eastern European cultures, certainly Scandinavian cultures, sauna followed by immediate cold exposure known as a contrast or a contrast method, heat, cold, heat, cold, um, has been shown for, again, for sports performance to aid in recovery. So if you're training hard and you got, you're worried about sore joints or you have sore joints, inflammation, et cetera, heat, cold exposure, awesome for inflammation and to speed recovery so that you can recover and get that next training session in. And in the longevity camp, it's doing that same thing. There's actually things that are called heat shock proteins. And when doing sauna um, and then, then you can dive into what kind of sauna, infrared, because that's one temperature and provides infrared light. Then there's the finished sauna, which is a little bit hotter. Um, they're both good, let's just put it that way. You just might have to stay in one a little bit longer. But the point being, these heat shock proteins like the sirtuins get activated. They then in turn literally trigger a survival mechanism. So you're activating, you're, you're putting good stress on the body. Let's put it that way. It's a stress. The body senses that it's a stress and what does not kill us makes us stronger. So the right. body senses this stress, whether it be extreme cold or extreme heat. And as a result, we get stronger from it. That's, you know, the, the, the layman's explanation of it. Right. Yeah. And I think heat is a little bit more underrated. I think we, again, like we tend to compartmentalize stuff with all the ice tubs, the ice tub and the heat sauna. Yeah. sauna. Um, one of the, the areas that I found, I mean, especially when I was an athlete in high school and, and college, um, but even like today, like, and you and I talk about this all the time is like Americans just don't sleep at all. Oh like, man. You talk about one, the, the negative impact of, sleep deprivation and it's not like you know you're, you're doing navy seal training boot camp deprivation but it's like this long term slow burn of like okay you're not getting eight hours but you're getting like five and it's not really a, even a good five hours over the course of 10 years or so what are the detrimental impacts of sleep deprivation from an athletic standpoint and a longevity standpoint and then what are two to three steps any average joe could take yeah two seconds from hearing you say it to get a better night's sleep you know, now that you brought up sleep, I, I was just thinking while I was listening to you that we actually should have talked about sleep first because, <laughs> yeah, nutrition is important and learning about good sugars and bad sugars or good carbs, I should say, and bad sugars, um, you know, cold exposure, heat exposure. These are all great things, but number, number, number one is sleep. And yeah, as Americans, for the most part, we're sleep deprived and that's a lifestyle choice. Um, especially obviously nowadays with technology, you know, you can just stay up in bed and stare at your phone if you want to. Um, and so five to six hours of sleep a night just doesn't cut it. And there's a myriad of negative health things that happen from this, from cognitive function and early onset dementia. So you're just wrecking your brain to not recovering from workouts, to messing up your metabolism, weakening your immune system. I mean, and it happens fast. We're not just talking about like, I don't know, two to three months of sleep deprivation. We're talking about like within a few nights, if you're getting five hours, five hours, five hours, you are already going down a slippery slope of hurting your health. Mm -hmm. So if for the moment, I, I, 
going back to one of your original questions, I actually do start with that. What is your sleep pattern like? How many hours of sleep do you get a night? We've got to work on getting people more sleep. How do you do that? Well, a couple of things. Number one is, as I said, you got to put your damn phone down. You got to put the laptop down or turn the TV off. You've got to wind down at night because if you're lying in bed staring at your cell phone um, and staring at the blue light, which we'll, we'll get to in a second, but the point is just being on those devices in and of itself is a bad habit late at night because that's what's cutting into a lot of people's sleep is they're just doing social media and other stuff. So they're choosing that over sleeping. You got to discipline, develop an atomic habit and kind of get work on improving your sleep pattern. So right. that's one is just making the decision like, okay, I need to get up at 7 a.m. Let's say I want to get eight hours of sleep. That means 11 o'clock is lights out for me to get my eight hours. So 11 o'clock, put the damn phone down and go to sleep. <laughs> right. um, the second thing I would say is just that blue light. So the blue light that's emitted from our screens um, actually disrupts the natural circadian rhythm. Okay. And that has to do with chemical hormones and, and things that get dumped um, when we are exposed to blue light. So staring at that computer screen or now LED lights all of this junk light, it's called, will in and of itself disrupt circadian rhythm and cause you to take longer to fall asleep and then not be able to get into that deep sleep or that REM sleep. So two, learn to cut out blue light, Okay. And especially as the night wears on. So for example, it's already twilight now, right? You and I are talking, it's about quarter after seven at night. I'm talking to you with no LED lights on. I have an infrared light that I'm using infrared light, infrared sort of mimicking the sun, basically. And if you think of a sunset to, to again, oversimplify things just to keep it really like simple understanding, mimicking a sunset, that sunset on a cloudy day, I'm using my red light, is telling my body like the day is winding down, start preparing for sleep. Even though it's seven o'clock, I'm probably going to go to bed between 9, 30 and 10, but I'm already starting my habit of preparing my body for sleep. So eliminate blue light. Sorry, that was a long answer, but that's number two. Third, cool room temperature is really important. Um, for the most part, the studies show like between 63 to 66 degrees. So the room has to be dark. Mm -hmm. um, I'd recommend wearing um, eye, eye covers, you know, a sort of a, a eye patch, eye shield. Um, you know, to really black out your room. You certainly don't want to have any LED lights on. So you got to unplug your devices. So the room is dark. There's no LED lights and make sure that the temperature is cool. Mm -hmm. And then when you like automatically, if you start increasing just by a little bit. So if you're, if you're on average sleeping six hours, right, I'm not going to say to you, okay, got to go right to eight tonight. It's probably not going to happen, but let's go to six and a half. Did you get six and a half? Let's try going to seven automatically, even with that extra 30 minutes of sleep, people are like, I just feel more energy during the day. I'm not as sluggish. Yeah. And I think it's these like these small intuitive fixes, right? Like obviously you're going to sleep. What, what you're really doing is you're, you're basically, even though we're in 2020, our biology is still 2020 BC. Yes. You know, we're, we're basically cave cavemen with iPhones. Yes. So if you're, you know, like, if you are in 
if you're looking at a blue screen on your phone all night, your, your cave brain is still pumping out the cortisol to keep you awake and saying, Hey, it's morning time. But the rest of your biology is telling you to go to bed because it's 10 o'clock at night. Exactly. That's exactly right. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think like even these, like those little tiny adjustments, guys, you'll really be surprised at how much better you sleep. Um, let's transition a little bit to the opposite side of the spectrum. How do you look at things like coffee and creatine? I guess this is more like supplements, but you know, coffee is a drug, creatine is a supplement, but yeah. you know, we think of these things as energizers. And I mean, I notice this being around, you know, high school athletes quite a bit, like kids are getting caffeinated at an earlier and earlier age every year. And what, I mean, you know, we're talking like Starbucks, like sugar bomb drinks, caffeine, but what's your philosophy of, of uh, caffeine? And then what's your philosophy of creatine? Okay. So on these subjects, coffee and creatine, let's just start there. And yeah, I, we're kind of falling into the supplement now column. Um, so in that column of supplements for starting with coffee slash caffeine and creatine. So first of all, I want to say that I am pro coffee and pro creatine. Now let's backtrack into that a little bit. What do I mean? First of all, if you are, I know you coach a lot of high school athletes and one of the things that I've seen just way too much over the years is pre-workout. Why <laughs> does a 15 or 16 or 17 or for that matter, a college, you know, 18 to 22 year old athlete, as long as they're getting enough sleep, need anything, need anything to get up for a workout. Like it's just ludicrous to me. It doesn't make sense, right? These artificial stimulants that are loaded with huge amounts of caffeine, huge amounts of sugar and or sweeteners. If you are at that age and you need to have an external exogenous stimulant to get up for a workout, there's something else going on. Like it's just crap. Let's just put right. it that way. That being said, nothing wrong with a cup of coffee, black, <laughs> no sugar, right? Um, so, you know, all these caramel and frappuccino, and all, that's not athlete food. That's, that's dessert. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's like, well, I'm going to have a little bit of sweet. That's dessert. Okay. I'm talking about health, polyphenols, antioxidants. Coffee is loaded. And many, many studies, again, you know, or you could, people could look them up on their own, but many studies in regard to coffee, polyphenols, antioxidants, um, helping prevent dementia, though you need a ton of coffee, but still the point is coffee is actually good for you. Um, right. As long as you can handle the caffeine and there, there, there's so much here. Um, there's slow burners and there's fast burners to caffeine. Um, I happen to luckily be a fast burner, so I can drink vast amounts of coffee and I don't get jitters, um, right. but I drink my coffee black and I really don't even use it for, for a boost because um, I could actually drink a cup of coffee and go to sleep. But the point is coffee, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's healthy if you're drinking it black, right? right. And caffeine, for those that are sensitive to it, yeah, it is a stimulant. Um, and if you do need a boost to pick me up, whatever, black coffee, yep you can go ahead and do that. It's a hell of a lot better than C4. Okay. <laughs> or yeah, NO explode. I remember yeah, NO explode. any of that crap. Yeah. What, exactly. Now what is, what does a polyphenol do? 
you you mentioned that organic black coffee has yeah so these are these are compounds these are compounds that exist um in things um think of you know mother nature organic coffee beans right it still comes from a plant uh grapes in particular the skin of red grapes uh dark cherries red cabbage um purple carrots you know all these kind of dark rich purpley uh, type foods, beets, these types of things are just loaded with this group of enzymes um, known as polyphenols that are free radical scavengers and just do a whole bunch of good um, for ourselves. So, you know, we haven't talked much about, you know, including vegetables and fruits in one's diet. We would hope that become kind of common sense, right? It's not just all carbs and, and all protein, but you got to get you know, your fruits and vegetables and some carbs from that source as well. But so these polyphenols, antioxidants, there's different names, people kind of get confused, but um, let's just say that they're enzymes that are really, really good for our health. And they're found usually in those types of dark kind of reddish purplish food, purplish foods. Gotcha. Including coffee. Now, when we, when you talk about um, something like creatine, um, you know, there's always like that one kid on the high school football team who was really scrawny and then he just started chugging a tub of creatine and then he's all water weight two weeks later. What yeah, I mean, it, creatine, first of all, um, you know, creatine's been like around and a, a loop. And what I mean by that is, um, is it, not that it's just been around a long time. It has, but, you know, it's gone from villain to good for you to villain to good for you at the end of the day. And I encourage, if we're talking to our high school athletes here, get permission from your parents, okay? Right. Do that first, but, but there's nothing wrong with creatine. It's perfectly safe. And in fact, in the longevity community, there are great new studies coming out. Um, and I'll give another one, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Um, she's really good. She's got some really good uh, research that she cites. She didn't do the research herself. Um, she's a longevity expert on creatine and creatine and ATP, obviously, and this being linked to brain health. So creatine is actually good for you. Um, how did it get a bad rap? Well, it got a bad rap because people abuse it, like a lot of things. You know, five grams is enough. Ten grams is not necessarily better. Um, also, the supplement company that you use because again if you read those ingredient labels the artificial sweeteners the colors the fillers you know it's largely not fda regulated so you don't yeah, know you might be drinking getting. sawdust if you're not careful exactly or or some other stuff i mean some companies not recently but not not that long ago have even been found to have been putting some steroids in there Really, you know, and then of course you're going to grow a little bit, even you know, on, on a small milligram per kilogram uh, level. But if there's this type of stuff in there, yeah. Um, and then on top of it, you can't just you know take creatine where where there have been problems in the few athletes um, where where they tried to link creatine. Um, there's always if you dig deeper, there's always an underlying health issue that you know someone had. But it's also look at the total picture again. You know, if a kid's playing in 110 degree weather um, and hasn't had any carbohydrates three hours prior and was dehydrating and is his third practice, it's probably not the creatine. Right. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So, you know, creatine's gotten this bad rap, but um, it's actually, again, if you're a high school athlete, check with your parents, but there's a ton of research that one could do on the health benefits of creatine. So I'm all for it. Creatine freaking works, um, but you got to use it the right way.
like anything else. Sure. And, and creatine, you can get that from – now, obviously, you can supplement it, but creatine you get naturally from most proteins, right? Um, primarily red meat, um, chicken, fish, some certain fishes do, but the, the, the number of grams, um, per ounce is like really low. So to get any kind of sports performance benefit out of creatine from food, um, off the top of my head, I forget the exact number, but, um, so don't quote me on this, but I think in order to get like five grams of creatine, which is a, a typical serving for an athlete per day. Uh, I think you'd have to eat like two or three pounds of beef. That's a lot of beef, right. you know, even, even for big guys, you know, um, at least on a daily basis. Like, and that's probably not good, even if you're a young, strong athlete eating like three pounds of beef every single day just to get five grams of creatine. There's probably going to be some downside health benefits to that. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, it's naturally occurring. It's just really hard to get it from food, and that's why we supplement with it. Gotcha. That makes total sense. Now, when you, I mean, obviously you're, you're kind of new, newer into, you're not new to coaching, but you're new to the longevity, newer to the longevity side of things. Where do you see the, the fitness industry or kind of fitness trends going in the next 10 to 20 years? Do you see it more going in the direction of uh, longevity, holistic approach, or is it still kind of too early to tell? Yeah, I do. And I think two markers, uh, again, you being, you know, in, into football and a, in a, in a football position coach, um, look at how many guys recently are starting to retire early at like age 29, mm-hmm. you know, because they're looking at their life in totality um, and they've made a little bit of money. Good for them, obviously, but they want to keep their bodies and their brains intact. You know, so they're starting to think about longevity in their 20s. You know, so we see that happening. And then, of course, um, we could just easily point to look at the success of Tom Brady, right? You know, he's in his early 40s. Um, another one would be Zidane Chara, if anybody's a hockey fan out there for the Boston Bruins playing, was playing at an extremely yeah, thousand years level. Old. You know, I think he's like 42 and, you know, still the captain of the team and still a real physical player. So players are either retiring early because they want to take care of their bodies or they're figuring out, you know, they want to keep playing, but they're really, really doing some different things nutritionally, sleep-wise, training-wise to take care of their bodies to preserve longevity. So they're, they're, they're not beat up like uh, an Earl Campbell or, you know, somebody like that later on down the road. So I think it's really, really becoming – uh, longevity, that is, um, is starting to, or health span, health span being, you know, you might not actually, let's say if you're biologically, you're, you're going to live to 80 years old. Um, it might not, this stuff might not make you live till 90 per se, but that time up until you're 80 is going to be really good quality. Mm-hmm. And then there is lifespan, which would be the increasing of your lifespan also. Um, so there's health span and lifespan. There's a difference. I hope I made that clear between the two. And the point is, I think that's where sports are going. I think these guys are starting to think about that more and more. Tom Brady's and Dan Chara and the guys that are retiring early being examples of that. But within the general population fitness, especially now, I think it was happening before coronavirus, but now even more so with coronavirus, health is the new wealth. Mm-hmm. People are going to really, really start to take a good, hard look at their overall health picture and what they can do to improve it and improve their immune systems and, you know, lose some weight and control their blood sugar and get their stress under control and lower their cortisol and, 
just be a healthier human being. Right. And I think one of the hardest things to tell a young athlete who's ready to, you know, grind till I die and bang weight on the bar and all that stuff is like, Hey dude, like you're going to be 48 years old one day and you're going to want to be able to play catch with your kid in the backyard. But like to an 18 year old kid who just wants to play football and like be the man, it is really hard to get that reality check. But I think when you see guys like Andrew Luck, who, you know, for all intents and purposes should have just been entering the, the, you know, prime years of his career, he called it quits because he just was so banged up. I think it's been a real reality check for a lot of kids. Um, Let's kind of transition a little bit more on the health span side of things. You know, we've all got older people in our lives that we care about, whether it's our grandparents or our parents, how do you see senior health changing in the next 10 to 20 years? Like, for example, there are, uh, I think you showed me, it was called the Centennial Games. So yeah, um, <laughs> I want to participate. So it's, yeah. So you're trying to compete in that. Can you tell us what the Centennial Games are and <laughs> yeah. why you're training for them? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Okay, so in terms of the, the older community, we don't even know what that kind of means anymore because 50 is the new 30, 70 is the new 50, and, and you know, so forth, um, and on, on down the road. But um, yeah, the, the, I think overall, um, people are looking at their health and their lifespan and wanting to increase both more and more. It's become a, a bigger topic. And again, I think the commercial gyms and so forth are going to start moving in this direction also. Um, so when we talk about health span, you, I think you mentioned, you know, with Andrew Luck and, and other athletes, you know, wanting to, you know, when they're older, run around with their kids or their grandkids and throw a football or kick a football in, in the backyard. And that's the preservation of health over the course of an athletic career and over the course of time. Um, and so what we're seeing is more and more older masters athletes, that population of 50 plus um, masters can actually start at younger ages, but he's using that uh, is actually increasing. Sports are, are increasing. Peter Atia, um, Dr. MD Peter Atia, um, is one who sort of coined this term about centenarian Olympics. And he sort of came up with a a rough outline of what you should be able to do at a hundred years old um, in order to still be a functioning, healthy 100 year old, rather than, uh, you know, a cripple that's in a wheelchair and has dementia and can't remember your grandchildren's names and so forth. And he came up with these guidelines. For example, I'll just give you one simple one. Like he likes to travel. So he said, I want still to be able to travel at hundred years old. So that would require me to be able to walk, to get on an airplane, lift up my carry on bag, which could weigh anywhere, let's say around 15 pounds, let's say, and lift that up over my head to be able to put that into an overhead compartment by myself without the assistance of a fellow passenger. So, and starting to think about those things at 50, rather than being like, ah, that's so far down the road, I don't care about that, but what can I do today that I can still be living healthy at 100 years old? That's the point. Or whatever, you know, whatever your numbers are, whatever your goal, what am I doing at 20 so that when I'm 40, I can be doing X? What am I doing at 40 so that when I'm 60, I still wanna be able to do X? And then you back the training, you back the nutrition, you back the sleep protocols into that so that you're setting yourself up for success 20 years down the road. Right, gotcha. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's like, you know, you think about, uh, I mean, for example, my grandfather's 90, he's going to be 94, 95 this year, but up until about 91 or 92, he had this job at a metal factory where he was, you know, he couldn't do a lot, but he was moving and grooving. He was yeah. moving boxes, you know, granted. And he even had his lawyer draw up a special waiver saying that like the family wouldn't sue the company if he fell into a vat of like liquid metal by yeah. accident. Cause he just wanted to keep working. And I think that, you know, when you stop moving, that's really when your health takes a big hit. And since he kind of was forced to retire at 93, he's still, you know, in pretty good shape, but his health has definitely declined since he stopped being that active. Yes. Yeah. And so what you're really referring to there is um, there have been studies done on these so-called blue zones. That is the, I think there's seven of them around the world. I can't remember all of them, but like um, Sardinia, uh, Sicily, there's one in California, Okinawa. Um, you were mentioning like Ukraine, these types of, of places where um, the largest concentration of people who have lived to 100 years old and beyond, and then studied their lifestyle. Like, what do they do? What do they do differently, let's say, than people are doing in, you know, our inner cities? Um, they, they, you know, they're not living, you know, New York City, maybe they're living to 78. But in Sardinia, they're living to, you know, 108. What are they doing differently? And it wasn't really that hard to figure out. Like you said, it's a lot of look at your grandfather. One was actually keep moving, <laughs> you know, right. um, don't retire, start a second career, start a third career, you know, um, and walk and do light physical activity like gardening, like yard work a little bit each day. So light physical activity throughout the day. It wasn't actually going to a gym, you know, and back squatting and bench pressing and power cleaning. It wasn't lifting of weights. Like we go to a gym indoors under led lights in this nasty air that we breathe in. And these right. people are actually outside raking leaves, tending their garden in the sunshine, getting fresh air. It is a big difference. And I'm not saying don't go to the gym, but I'm saying people might want to start thinking about riding their bike, walking through a park, doing a open water swim, you know, doing things outdoors in nature a little bit more like our grandparents did because our grandparents didn't go to a gym. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's one of, one of the jokes I get a lot from my like Ukrainian buddies is like, you know, you don't need the gym. All you need is a floor and a pull-up bar and you're good to yeah. go, man. Yeah. And they're not really that wrong. <laughs> no, they're not. I mean, if you needed the gym to get like ferociously strong and ready yeah, to fight exactly. somebody, That's like I mean. the Spartans never would have been a thing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so last question, can you take us through what's the one thing you want people to take away from your coaching on longevity what's the most important thing that if anybody only took one thing away from talking to you you'd feel like you had a success with them oh man that that just you know health is everything and i'm not just saying that because of the virus that's out there today it is what i've been trying to preach and even more so now is that you know you could be a freaking billionaire um, but if you don't have a healthy mind, healthy body, um, what good is it? You're not going to be around to enjoy it anyway, and you can't take all that material crap with you. So please, please take a snapshot of where you are health-wise and see what you can improve on. And it doesn't take massive overhauling. It's not like you have to 
go immediately clean out every single food in your cupboard and go to the gym for you know, five one-hour personal training sessions a week. It's not massive change. It's little atomic habits, one at a time, that can really improve your health span and your lifespan. Awesome. I'm going to hang on one second. Thanks for listening to the Coach K Hill podcast. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to share it on any social media platform or leave a review on Apple iTunes. It really helps a lot with spreading the word. And thanks for your time.